Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Miss the show? No worries. On point now on the podcast, the Trudeau government was warned last June that the Taliban was going to take over the country and that women were being targeted and would be killed. Why did the government not act? Why did the world look away? We will talk to a Canadian senator who was part of that call warning the government about the Taliban threat and why she feels the world looked away. China is increasing its aggression against Taiwan in what is the biggest threat we've seen and a sign that China could be preparing for war, America telling them to back off. But where's Canada? On the sidelines, of course. We'll also talk about the Catholic Church once again being rocked by a sex scandal. This one said to involve as many as 300,000 children in France dating back 70 years. The Pope says he is pained by this. But where are the penalties for those who actually carry out these alleged crimes? Why is it always about cruel indifference shown to those who have suffered the abuse and silence while the whole thing's covered up. Let's get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Hi, Mr. O'Toole. The, the, your caucus voted today to give itself the power to remove you at any point. Uh, what does that mean for how long you'll be leader? Our caucus is fully united and we're ready to get to work to fight for Canadians. I've supported the Reform Act since Michael Chong brought it in. I voted for it in 2015. 2019, and I encourage people to vote for it today. It's about making sure we are united as a caucus and focused on fighting for Canadians, which we will. Arrow Tool survives to lead another day, but the constant conservative infighting is only serving to help Mr. Justin Trudeau. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, October 5th. Here we go. Great to have you along. In the last hour or so, uh, Aaron O'Toole learned that he will stay on as leader for now. But his win uh, certainly comes with a whole bunch of fine print and uh, could be short-lived because before today's meeting with the party, which is the first since the election, O'Toole urged his caucus, you know, give yourselves the power to oust me as leader if I can't deliver. And so he lives to be the leader today, but he's got an uphill battle because it would take just 20% of caucus to hold a vote at any time to get rid of him. And it is very obvious that there are numerous factions in and outside of the party who want him gone. And those factions sadly have all their own self-interests to serve. So O'Toole's got a tough battle ahead because he's got to unite his caucus. He's got to bring back the detractors. He's got to come back, you know, to being a conservative or the true blue conservative, all while his political Rivals undermine his every move and run to the media to air the dirty laundry of this party. You know, be damned the damage it does. Or that it just makes Trudeau's life a whole lot easier. I mean, liberals love nothing more than when conservatives fight. Because all it does is take the attention off their party's many, many failures. And only a conservative can step on a rake while shooting themselves in the foot at the same time. Because right now, what the conservatives should be doing is not fighting, not airing their grievances. Right now, all they should be doing is standing back, shutting up, 
and letting Trudeau fester in a scandal of his own making. Because right now, Trudeau's holding a flaming bag of dog poop. And instead of letting it burn, and burn it should, all this infighting is throwing water on that. So I don't understand why they aren't just getting out of the way and allowing Trudeau to remain in the headlines. Because for the first time, this scandal might actually stick to him. Because he hasn't just angered Canadians on all sides of the aisle, but he's angered Indigenous leaders right across the country on the very issue Trudeau wants to build his legacy on. And we all know, you know, he gets away with these scandals time and time again, because not only is he backed by a cult who will excuse any and all his bad behavior, no matter what. But because Trudeau knows that he can just wait it out long enough, you know, hide in his cottage, which is where he is now, and that either the media will tire and move on to something else, or he knows that the Conservatives will find a way to somehow score on their own net. And right now, all of this infighting over leadership is doing just that. And yes, there should be a leadership review of uh, O'Toole's performance. No question about it. He failed. And yes, there should be questions about his future. O'Toole took a calculated risk to move the party away from Grandpa, and in doing so, pissed off a lot of conservatives who actually happened to like their Grandpa's party. So he should have to answer for that. He should have to offer a plan that he can undo the damage without looking like a hypocrite. But if the conservatives were smart and right now that's very questionable, they would take a step back and say, look, we've got at least 18 months until the next election. We don't have to have this fight right this second, and they don't. And don't do it if you're going to have it out in the open. Certainly not while Trudeau's holding the flaming bag of dog poop, which is still on fire. I mean, there is a saying. When your opponent is digging a hole, hand him a shovel. And Trudeau, I mean, he deserves every bad headline he's getting because he lied and he got caught. And the longer he refuses to take or make any, you know, real steps forward or show any kind of contrition, he just further damages his own brand and that of the liberals. So I do not understand why the conservatives insist on getting in the way of that because strategically it's just stupid. Add to it that there are a lot of political vipers that are eager to, cap, eager to uh, capitalize on O'Toole's election failures. And it's just sad, not surprising, however, that they just can't park their personal ambitions and let Trudeau's bad behavior take center stage. And I will point out, neither Jagmeet Singh or Justin Trudeau, both of whom failed to make any gains, are making daily headlines over their leadership future. I mean, no one is demanding accountability for them. It is just... The conservatives, who always seem determined to cannibalize themselves again and again and again, despite the fact that the strategy doesn't really work out so well for them. And when you look at the liberals, you know, putting aside the very public fight between Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin, you will rare, rarely ever see the liberals air their grievances in public. Certainly not in Trudeau's party. I mean, you've seen it. Liberal MPs, they stand by their men no matter how bad the scandal. I mean, even during SNC, which should have ended Trudeau's career. I mean, many of them should have ended his career. And, but in that one, we saw only Jody Wilson-Raybould paid a price. Jane Philpott chose to join her, but 
No matter how bad the scandal is, be it blackface, uh, the kokanee grope, we charity, on and on it goes, liberal MPs stand by their gaftastic leader, no matter what. Now, that doesn't mean the knives are not out for Trudeau's job. I am quite sure that Christopher Freeland has a full Ginsu collection sharpened and ready to go. But publicly, she backs Trudeau. Therefore, this issue does not become a huge distraction played out in the public. So I would suggest to the Conservatives that maybe it's time you take a page out of the Liberal playbook. Maybe O'Toole has to go, but it doesn't have to happen today or tomorrow. And so it's long past time that uh, they get a little smart and maybe try circling the wagons instead of circling the wagons and then shooting inwards at each other. It doesn't work. So we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the show. Whether or not Mr. O'Toole can, serve the, can survive this, I don't know. I don't know. But he did say something today um, that stuck out to me when he was asked about defending his failures, you know, what went wrong. And this is his explanation for losing the election. And when I heard it, I thought, well, if that's how you're thinking, you're going to lose your leadership too. I am accept responsible. And I accept that responsibility. We fell short when I had a plan for us to win the confidence of more Canadians, we fell short. The simple reason for why that happened was Mr. Trudeau used the pandemic to divide Canadians. We did not. It Did we pay a price for it? Perhaps we did. That's part of the... That's part of the review. No, sorry, the pandemic did not lose this election for Mr. O'Toole. It didn't help, but it wasn't the cause. It was... Mr. O'Toole's inability to take a stand on issues he ought to have had a position on, a clear position, whether it was guns or vaccine mandates or just simply being a conservative. Because the second he tried to be all things to all people, he lost the trust of the people, including people in his own party. So there's going to have to be a lot of figuring stuff out, but that, that answer won't fly. Sorry. I, I, I like Aaron O'Toole. I think he's a decent guy, but politics ain't nice. It is a very sharky world, and he's up against a freight train of uh, political vipers right now, And but, but that answer's not going to sell. You know, the fall of Afghanistan is like a distant memory. It's barely a headline these days, despite the glaring failures of the West, uh, including the true government, they failed. Clear and simple, they failed to act, they failed to get people out when they had a chance. And it, it wasn't just Canadian vets who were waving the red flags that there was trouble ahead. There were a number of Afghan women ministers who warned this government that the Taliban was closing in and taking women's rights away and starting to carry out atrocities as far back as June. And these female Afghan ministers begged Canada to do something before it was too late. And what did we do? We did nothing. In fact, the government decided to call an election fully knowing that we would be leaving thousands of Canadian Afghans behind interpreters and women to be killed and or abused by this terror group. And of course, since then, it has hardly been mentioned. Senator Selma Adelajan joins me now. She's co-chair of the Parliamentary Friendship Group. Senator, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Alex. Back in July, Afghanistan ambassadors to Canada briefed uh, Canadian MPs about all the brutalities, included these targeted killings and moves to oppress women um, as the Taliban took in more of the country. You are a co-chair of the Parliamentary Friendship Group. So you heard um, these 
what is nothing short of begging for help. Why, why weren't these pleas taken seriously? Well, uh, Alex, I'll just take you back to June. So in June, um, we spoke to the female parliamentarians. Some of them were ministers in Afghanistan. Since mm-hmm. July, the Canada-Afghanistan um, friendship group was very active. We had many meetings. But in June, we had one with the female parliamentarians. And uh, they were begging. They were begging for help. They were worried. And they were, they were you know, um, asking us for help. And I remember one uh, lady specifically who... Uh, you know, we were sort of reassuring them, oh, yes, we're concerned and we're listening to you. And she said in Pashto, which is my mother tongue, um, and said, you know, we don't need their concern. We need help right now. And, and of course, the translator didn't translate that, but I understood it. So we were being asked for help in, in, in June. Um, you know, the, uh, people on the ground knew something was happening. And in July, on the 29th of July, the friendship group, we invited all the parliamentarians to a meeting with the Afghanistan's ambassador, Hassan Surosh, and he gave us a very, very uh, comprehensive details of all, uh, you know, that was happening in Afghanistan. Um, if, you know, if we have to go back um, a bit in time, because even at the height of um, Karzai's government or Ashraf Ghani's uh, government, um, the cities were controlled. There was always doubt about the rural areas as to who had control over this. And the situation, and I'm not sure why it's not resonating or um, or it's not getting as much media coverage as it is, because, you know, somehow the Taliban in, in those early days, as you well know, tried to convince the Western world that uh, they were more progressive uh, than they had been in, in the past. And clearly they are not progressive in any way. In fact, they have announced that they're going to be cutting off hands and doing executions and all the things that, that we know that they do. Um, but there is, for some reason, in the United States, you know, the Secretary of State uh, is using language of normalizing them as, as if we're going to somehow uh, legitimate, legitimize this organization if they just behave by the rules, which I think in some ways has led people to believe that they're a nicer group and that there's no suffering in Afghanistan, which, could, which couldn't be any further from the truth. Well, you know what, if you have to remember that the U.S. was talking to the Taliban in Doha for some time now, there were conversations taking place. Um, you know, the Taliban can say all they want to, but... Uh, you know, uh, their actions speak louder than their words. And we're already hearing of uh, schools being, you know, women being told not to go to universities, girls being told not to go to schools. And and in in the meeting that we had um, on the 29th of July with the um, ambassador, you know, under the uh, uh, friendship group, um, he he told us about the summary executions that were taking place of uh, girls that were being, you know, over the age of 15, were being kind of earmarked and saying, okay, so this one would marry so-and-so and this one would marry so-and-so. So, you know, all that had started before the Americans e- even left. And yet... Yeah, I'm... You know, we, I was just going to say, we had plenty of warning before. As soon as the United States said that they were going to pull troops out, that was an indication right then and there to the Trudeau government that they had to get moving, even though they should have been moving years earlier but they didn't. And so a lot of people have died and there are still people trying to get out of that country that we seem to have forgotten about. We have. And and, and frankly, what bothers me is Canada was missing. We were missing. Um, you know, for the Prime Minister to 
fallen in election on the day when Kabul fell. You know, what about the sacrifices that young men and women made in Afghanistan? And I was so concerned about, um, you know, being uh, someone who is from that part of the world, understands the the history, as I had traveled extensively, you know, our summer holidays used to always be in Kabul. And I remember the Kabul of, you know, the olden days. Um, When I was a new senator, I um, proposed a study in the Human Rights Committee. I was appointed in 2012 and 2011. As Canada was getting ready to leave um, Kandahar, I proposed a study on uh, specifically on the gains that were made by the women of Afghanistan. What would happen to those gains? Mm-hmm. It's almost as though I could see the writing on the wall even then. To your recollection, did anybody pay attention to the what was being told to them in those meetings back in June and July? Did um, liberal MPs understand the message? Did, did those conservatives, did they all understand what, what was being said and what was needed? Uh, I don't know, because we, we, we put the message out. Uh, we had two ministers who attended that meeting, liberal ministers who attended that meeting um, after the uh, Hassan Surosh's, uh, you know, briefing. Uh, there were a few questions, but um, really nobody did anything. I mean, Maryam Mansaf was there, um, uh, Deb Schultz was there, as they were liberal MPs and some conservative MPs and senators we, you know, we from um, every group. We were there, and 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 the reason we organized these meetings was because of our concern that something was going to happen in Afghanistan. We needed to be there. We needed to, you know, be prepared. Um, it, I, did, I didn't see anyone react to that. I didn't see anyone react to that. And so when you saw what was going on on the ground in Afghanistan and you see the prime minister standing out front of, uh, you know, the Rideau Hall, uh, you know, dropping the writ, were you surprised, aghast, shocked? I was aghast. This is the tribute we paid to, uh, we paid to our young um, men and women who died in Afghanistan, 158 of them. You know, we were in a, we were in Afghanistan. The, the women made gains. You know, um, what happens now? I mean, I I still have an MP uh, who messages me, you know, on and off, and gives me an update on how bad things are, how terrible things are, how they fear for their mm-hmm. lives. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I we also we don't know. Like he said, they're bringing forty thousand people. In. And I know some people have come, and I'm very happy that they've done that, and they've brought some people over. But, you know, they should have heard the voices of the vets who were saying, bring the, these guys who helped us. I mean, they were there on the ground. They could pinpoint yeah. all the people who helped them. And yet, nobody listened to anybody. And so what happens now? Um we still have people over there. Uh, we still have a country that has fallen into terror um, hands. Do you get the sense that Afghanistan has just been abandoned and, and you know, this is going to just be the stain, one stain on Canada? Or do you believe that there is any hope that, that there, will, there will be some kind of change moving forward? You know, um, personally, and here I'm talking on a personal level, Salma Tarajan, I'm not wearing my senator's hat, I feel... The world has forgotten about Afghanistan, and the world maybe wants to forget about Afghanistan. And that's why, you know, I'm grateful, um, you know, Alex, when you reached out to me to try and keep the story alive, we must tell these stories. These are stories that need to be told because Canada had a stake in Afghanistan, and we mustn't mm-hmm. forget that. 
No, um, we shouldn't. And the fact is, it's um, the fact that so many warnings were issued uh, from, you know, women's groups in Afghanistan, from yourself, from veterans across this country who have really done a lot of heavy lifting all on their own. And uh, they're still doing the heavy lifting. And yet the government has looked away with the rest of the world. Senator, I'll be happy to keep uh, this story in the spotlight. So I'm happy to have you on and um, contribute in any way I can. I appreciate very much your time. Thank you and have a good day. That is Senator Selma Adelajan joining us, and we'll have her on again because this is an issue that should not go. I mean, the fact that it has vanished in the headlines is not entirely shocking, but I think it says a lot about who we are as a country when we can look away so easily to these kinds of very avoidable uh, travesties. So this has fallen under the radar. It should not because things are really heating up in the Indo-Pacific as China's ratcheting up its aggression towards Taiwan, which they've uh, on Monday sent 115 Chinese fighter aircraft that entered into Taiwan's defense zone and made its presence known ahead of the island's national day. 56 planes flew into the space in just one day. And China's been escalating its aggression against the independent state for more than a year. China, of course, blaming the U.S. for the escalation in tension by sending warships into the region and arming Taiwan. Add to that the recent deal between the U.S., U.K., and Australia. But the bottom line is China isn't even hiding that Taiwan's independence is a dead end. And they say they will smash any plot to defend its sovereignty. And so where is Canada in all of this? Well... We have one ship in the region, but other than that, not a word has been sent by Canada, nor have we aligned ourselves with our allies in a united front. Marcus Kolga joining me now, senior fellow at Macdonald Laurier Institute, founder of Disinfo Watch, as well as well as an expert in all things Russia, Eastern Europe, Asia, and the Indo-Pacific region. Good to have you, Marcus. Thank you for having me on. This has kind of been escalating over the last few days. Canada not saying a word because apparently we have no principles anymore. But the United States and China are full out saber rabbling with the U.S. telling China to back off. And China told the U.S. get lost. Uh, where is this going in your mind? Uh, well, you know, it's this sort of uh, activity on the on the Chinese side has been going on for several years. You know, last year uh, there were some 350 uh, incursions into that uh, Taiwanese sort of uh, airspace between China and Taiwan and the Taiwanese Strait. Uh, this year, that number has doubled. Uh, so far, there have been over 600. And as you mentioned, just over this weekend, uh, in fact, since October 1st, there have been 150 incursions uh, in that in that space. So, um, you know, things are definitely heating up. Um, the The Chinese incursions uh these i mean there could be several reasons for this uh, uh certainly i think uh, china is trying to send the u.s a message uh given the fact that U the u.s is becoming far more active now in the pacific region with its the announcement of the uh, new AUKUS alliance um uh, so it could be they could be trying to send a message to to the u.s um, China also does have an interest in Taiwan. Uh, China sure. absolutely believes that Taiwan uh, belongs to them. And so uh, this sort of activity is intended, and it always has been intended, uh, as a form of a psychological warfare to wear down the Taiwanese government and the Taiwanese people um, and, uh, and certainly bully them. And so that, that could be part of it, and it certainly is part of, part of the, uh, their actions as well. But... Uh, but as you mentioned, Canada is, has remained uh, 
you know, uh, rather uh, worryingly quiet on all of this. Um, you know, after the, the release of the two Michaels, one would expect Canada to to step up uh, and stand with our allies, but uh, we're not seeing any of that yet. Yeah, I mean, we let Hong Kong fall to China. Canada did not say a word, um, and, and we haven't heard any kind of. Um, you know, statement about whether Canada will stand with Taiwan. And when you look at a map, I mean, Taiwan is a tiny little pinprick beside China. But clearly, the United States has sent ships to the region. Clearly, Australia is mobilizing itself, the UK. What does a conflict look like here? Um, you know, we can't let Taiwan fall. Um, it's, a, it's a travesty that we turned a blind eye to Hong Kong. But what does it look like, uh, you know, in, in the end of this? Uh, you know, will, will the world look away as Taiwan falls or will this result in some kind of conflict? Well, I'm not sure that we can. Uh, Taiwan is critically important, strategically important uh, in the region. You know, if Taiwan falls, then there will be major questions about other countries in the region, you know, from Japan all the way down to Vietnam. Uh, You know, the question will be who's next. So um, I don't think that strategically uh, the Western world, certainly not the United States, Australia, the UK, who've come together, they can't allow that to happen. It's just, it it cannot happen because the rest of the region will be completely destabilized if that happens. Um, And also economically, uh, Taiwan is is critically important to um, the world's production and manufacture of electronic goods. You know, everyone with Mm -hmm. an iPhone those chips that you have in there uh, and the, the real, the, the detailed guts of it are all manufactured in Taiwan. Uh, the same goes for, you know, computers and all sorts of high-end um, IT devices. So uh, there's also that, we, you know, economically we can't allow it to fall to China, although, uh, you know, China will try and put as much pressure on the Western world knowing that. And so, uh, you know, we need to certainly, uh, the, the U.S. is doing a good job of standing up and deterring China to this point. The AUKUS alliance is another step towards deterring it. Um, The question is, where's Canada? Yeah, I think a lot of people would like to know, um, and I don't know if we're going to hear about that. I mean, the Prime Minister is saying he'll have a decision on Huawei soon, and um, certainly he said they'll be getting back to work in the next couple of weeks. He's going to have to take a position either which way, and if he makes a wrong one, then it's uh, not just detrimental to um, our relationship with allies, but certainly, uh, you know, we, we, we become a danger, I think, to ourselves because we'll be isolated uh, from our allies if we make the wrong decisions here. But, you know, um, we've got a number number of Chinese officials on the ground here who are not staying quiet. And, and you know this, they're spreading disinformation and they're getting away with it. I mean, China's ambassador to Canada all the time is openly threatening Canada and, and telling us to keep quiet and what we should and should not say. We have a Canadian senator right now, Yun Pao Wu, who is, you know, par- parroting Chinese talking points and, you know, telling us the lessons we should take from the the two Michaels. And, you know, if you question their their comments, um, then you're you're called a racist, which is a a very weaponized attack. And it's done very, very purposely. But I just don't think everyday Canadians understand that because we're very polite about it. No, for sure. And uh, the Chinese are very smart about it. And not just the Chinese, but other authoritarian regimes use the same sort of uh, rhetorical tactic. Uh, of, of using racism as, as a weapon against us. Uh, these, you know, this, whether it's the Chinese or the Russians, they, they understand that Canada is a very diverse nation. We take our, di- we, we, we have a lot of respect uh, for each other and uh, we take pride in the tolerance that we have uh, and, and our di- diversity. 
So, you know, these sorts of tools, they know that because of our sensitivity towards them uh, and towards, you know, diversity and tolerance, uh, they, they mm-hmm. find these rhetorical weapons used against us. And so, uh, you know, the, the Chinese, uh, whether it's the ambassador or the government, they've been using this for some time. Uh, recall in 2018 when the two Michaels were first detained, the, uh, the former ambassador, Chinese ambassador to Canada, when, when we raised our objections to that uh, hostage taking... Oh, you're talking about he, the, the disaster known as John McCallum. Yes, that man? Well, yes. Well, that man. But it was, the, it was actually the Chinese ambassador who accused oh, yeah. uh, the Canadian government of white supremacy. When we yeah. uh, when we objected to the the hostage taking, and this sort of same rhetoric has been going on uh, ever since then. Uh, any sort of criticism of whether it's you know China's ongoing genocide in East Turkestan uh, against the Uyghur minority, whether it's the crackdowns on uh, uh, Hong Kong's pro democracy movements, or criticism of their the mass human rights abuses that are going on in Tibet. Um, any sort of criticism is met with is not always, but often met with the accusation of of racism and xenophobia, and, mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, that same sort of rhetorical uh, attack is is uh, making its way into Canadian uh, domestic politics. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, uh, look, this, the the senator that you that, who you mentioned, Senator Wu. Um, let's not forget that he is an unelected member of Parliament. He is a senator. Um, there is very little accountability uh, when it comes to what he says and what he does. Um, any criticism of his uh, position uh, is not uh, a form of racism. You know, he has taken some very uh, some positions that are very much aligned with with China, and our criticism of those positions cannot be conflated with any form of racism. It's completely legitimate to for any Canadian to. To question and criticize uh, any policy by or any and anything that any senator says, and and also the actions of the Chinese government. So, um, you know, I think Canadians need to be aware that this sort of uh, rhetorical tactic is used as a weapon against us, and we need to be aware of it and and reject it when it happens in these sorts of cases. Yeah, and your own um, organization, Disinfo Watch, released a report on this back in June, warning of these wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, you know, tactics that are being used. Just, I've got about 30 seconds left, uh, Marcus. My question is, why aren't the governments, or why isn't the government, and I probably can't answer this question on my own, why aren't they doing more to inform and educate Canadians about these things? Uh, you know, I, I think they'd rather bury them, their heads in the sand. I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's the, like, quite frankly, it's, I mean, it's a very complicated issue. Uh, trying to defend against information warfare and psychological warfare is not a simple, yeah. it's not a uh, uh, there's not one single silver bullet that will fix this. It takes a lot of effort, and and I don't think that the government has the time nor the uh, will to start uh, start looking at this and, and defending Canadians against these sorts of information attacks. Yeah, hell, if we can't take on Facebook, who's going to take on China with the disinformation? Nonetheless, Marcus, always ap- always appreciate your time on this. Thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on. That is uh, Marcus Kolga joining us here. So, you know, I'm glad to see there's a bit more conversation about this, but uh, there's got to be a whole lot more information about the disinformation that is really, truly dividing us and undermining our own national security. Big, big story coming to us out of France as a Roman Catholic yet again rocked with a massive sex scandal where it's alleged more than 200,000 children aged 10 to 13 were sexually abused over the last 70 years. 
while the church turned a blind eye to it. And Pope Francis uh, issued a statement, yet another statement. He did not apologize, but he said he felt pain over the findings and expressed hope for a path of redemption. <sighs> the Catholic Church, of course, as you know, I mean, they have tried to address these issues over and over and over. Um, it hasn't really worked. They held a summit on pedophilia in the church and said that they would change laws to go after the abusers. Yet time and time again, we hear about these abuses and these cover-ups being carried out all over the world in the Catholic Church. And what we actually never see is any actual redemption or penalties for those carrying out these alleged crimes. What we often hear is about the cruel indifference shown to those who have suffered and had to suffer the abuse in silence. I want to bring Michael McDonald into this conversation. He is the communications manager for a group called SNAP. This is the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. He joins us from Philadelphia. Good to have you, Michael. Alex, it is so good to be with you. And I'll tell you, I listened to your your uh, introduction there, and you really hit on some so many key topics that uh, are in the questions of the minds of so many survivors and advocates and the faithful alike. And the reason you speak um, to this, and you can do so on authority, is because you yourself were abused by two Catholic priests, one of whom would be later convicted, but you were just 12 when this happened. And even though one of them ended up uh, going behind bars, it certainly didn't do you know, stop the destruction that their crimes caused in your lives, whether it was you know, drugs or, or theft, failed marriages. There was a price that you paid um, because of what happened within the church. Yes, I, you know, uh, I was abused between the ages of 11 and 13. And uh, at the age of 12, I found I found an anesthetic and, and my anesthetic of choice was was alcohol uh, that allowed me to to literally become someone else and suppress all of that pain that I had had harbored for so many years. Uh, simply because I was not ready to talk. I was not ready to tell anybody uh, the horrific experiences that uh, I had suffered at the hands of two Catholic priests. And, and the allegations that, that we're hearing about now, they did, in fact, surface in 2018. Uh, the report came out today, and they actually say there could be as many as 330,000 uh, victims in this particular situation would this be the largest um investigation or are there others that are larger no doubt about it to, to date this is the largest investigation and what we see uh as as snap um we we find that the secular investigations produce the most evidence and the best evidence and also a safe platform for victims to come forward because let's face it most victims who have suffered harm at the hands of a priest, nun, religious, or layperson of the Catholic Church are not going to trust the Catholic Church as the authority to do the investigation. Therefore, the secular investigations, the independent investigations, produce the most amount of information. These statistics that came out of France today are uh, obviously staggering staggering numbers. I mean, there's there's an estimate that it, it could go up to 330,000. Uh, this is over a 70-year period of time. But if we take a look 
if we take a look at, at some of the, the, the countries that have tracked the numbers, and we've done that ourselves, known abusers in the U.S., there's 7,300. In France, we just learned of a, a number of 3,200. Australia, 1,900. If we just take those three countries alone, that's 12,400 abusers in countries that have a total number of 423 million Catholics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Um, the numbers really are starting to trend to 112,000 Catholic abusers, whether it's clergy, religious, or nuns worldwide. And we're, we're trending towards a number of 1.2 million victims. And that, that is an absolute travesty. Yeah, and, and, you know, when we have these conversations, I think those of the Catholic faith, um, I mean, feel like they're being targeted, which is not the case. It's not, they should not feel like they're being dumped on because this is their particular faith. But there is now so much uh, of the, so many of these stories and so many of these headlines. I think what is clear is that either the Catholic Church at the highest levels does not feel it has to be accountable, will not be held accountable, because as we've seen in in what we're dealing with in this country, and I don't know if you follow it with the truth and reconciliation, they will send out the thoughts and prayers. But what people really want in these cases is accountability. They want prosecutions. They want documentation. The Catholic Church is very, very powerful, and so what we not what we don't generally see, Michael, is the accountability, or you know, the documentation um, being being put out so that that we can get an actual accounting of some of these crimes that have happened through history. Yeah, and I have followed. We have uh, several SNAP leaders uh, in Canada, and we have followed the the tragedies that have unfolded uh, in Canada. And my heart goes out to each and every victim and family that uh, was affected. But you, you make a great point, Alex. And you t- the Catholic Church has, has often used this playbook, and, and part of that playbook includes telling parishioners that this is a thing of the past. And the reality is it's not a thing of the past. The Catholic Church is very happy with an intermediate truth but they don't want to face the ultimate truth. And the ultimate truth is that truth, that, that transparency and accountability that you mentioned. Um, clearing away the wreckage of the past can create a path forward for any individual, any institution in life. And yet, they absolutely are so focused, the, the church officials so focused on the preservation of their reputation and mm. completely overlook the, the, the impact and the, the, the survivors who have long held the liability, life-changing liability, that it has been, uh, it, ultimately, it is there, it's a, it's a terminal illness for for most survivors uh, i will never it'll never go away for me i can i can maintain levels of of spirituality and happiness on my own without an institution telling me when to stand sit and kneel do this do that 
Um, but that's not for every survivor. There are so yeah. many angry survivors. Certainly, and accountability and actual tangible redemption may inevitably be the only way to protect uh, the religion itself, those who follow the faith. I mean, they are being failed by the upper echelons, um, you know, at the Vatican, who seem to think that it's okay just to issue a, you know, pain and, and we feel for you. But there actually has to be um, a resolution here. And, I mean, part of your healing now, I guess, you know, in many ways comes from helping other victims. I mean, you make no secret yeah. that you are flawed. You're very open about your abuses and the destruction that it created in your life. Unfortunately, yeah. not everybody um, will be able to find that path. I mean, they ultimately will be destroyed by this. Yeah. I am to kind of circle back a little bit with the accountability. Let's keep in mind that the Catholic Church especially in, in, in many countries, but certainly in the United States and, and uh, even in Canada, have blocked good legislation that would allow survivors who have been time-barred from justice to have their day in court. And ultimately what they have done is they have opened up compensation programs that literally pay pennies on the dollar of what a court would award in civil court, and that's simply mm -hmm. to eliminate survivors as litigants. The frothy emotional appeals and apologies do not work. Forgiveness is an action word, and they, the church officials and prelates do not seem to understand that action word. They would rather forgive each other, as we have seen uh, in Canada, in Poland, in Germany, and in the U.S., where bishops are under investigation by another bishop. Well, to us, that's inviting the arsonist to investigate the arson fire. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like that fox uh, guarding the hen house. Michael, in your mind, um, is this the case? Is this the case in France that changes things? Well, I certainly think it is the case that has freshened up and opened up the eyes of the Catholics that are filling the pews on uh, on Sundays, um, you know, but we also thought that the Pennsylvania grand jury report in 2018 was going to be the the big eye opener. Um, you know, these staggering numbers, I think time will tell. Uh, but I know for fact that what this report and what these brave survivors have done today is that they have given hope and strength to many, many other survivors who have been sitting in silence, waiting mm -hmm. for some strength, some hope, and some courage to come forward themselves. Um, I think yeah. that that is the ultimate price, and, and, and boy, what a reward that is when others are able to, to come out and disclose their own pain. Well, certainly it is the start of a very long road, and uh, we'll see where it takes us. But uh, very much appreciate you joining us and um, sharing your perspective on this, because it is a unique one. So, Michael, I thank you, and we'll call upon you again. Alex, I appreciate being with you. Thank you. Thank you. That is uh, Michael McDonald, who is with a group called SNAP. This is the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. This organization, in particular, Michael is with, is in Philadelphia, but there are other branches of that, as he mentioned, even in Canada. So there are groups out there um, who help and support and offer um, 
you know, uh, a support system for those who are find themselves in this situation. But boy, oh boy, big headline, and we'll see where it takes us. You, of course, can listen anytime. Join us, 6.30, Monday through Friday here. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.